the company commander, after I was there for a few days, called me and a couple of other newbies in. And he says, the one thing I want you guys to be clear about is what our job is. And I'm thinking, well, our, our job is to, you know, drive tanks, shoot guns, blow stuff up. And he says, our job is to die. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Brian Regal entered the US Army in 1977 and served on the M60A1 tank initially as a driver. The M60A1 was America's primary main battle tank during the Cold War with initial deployment in 1960 and served through to 1991. After studying at tank school, Brian was sent to West Germany where he was assigned to 335 Armour in the Bamberg garrison as part of the 1st Armoured Division, where the 335 was tasked to fight a Warsaw Pact attack across the Czechoslovak and East German borders. Brian was also his company's nuclear, biological, chemical warfare specialist. He describes in detail his training, how patrols were conducted along the borders, an incident with the Soviet military liaison mission car, as well as practice alerts. It's a great chat and Brian is frank about his role and the scant expectations for survival if war did come. He is now Dr. Brian Regal, Professor for History of Science, Technology and Medicine at Keene University, New Jersey. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation, you'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Brian Regal to our Cold War conversation. I wanted to go see the world. I wanted to be an adventurer. I hold a PhD in the history of science, technology, and medicine, and I'm a university professor. Uh, but when I was in grammar school and high school, I was, I was not expected to be someone who would do well academically. My parents wanted me to do well. My parents, my father wanted me to go to college. Um, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a historian. And all of my teachers in both grammar school and high school told me I was too stupid to be an academic. Uh, you know, nobody in my family uh, had ever gone to college. You know, e even in my extended family, I, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, originally in, in a neighborhood called the Ironbound. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of uh, <laughs> the environment. And uh, there were riots there. We moved across the river to Kearney. And, you know, I, I wanted to be smart. I was collecting books. I was doing a lot of reading. I was one of those kids who, at home, at night, I was calculating the distance from the Earth to Jupiter so I could build a spaceship and fly there. 
and then during the day was failing all my science classes. <laughs> so there, there was a bit of a disconnect. <laughs> the ambition was there, though. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I was trying to write little things on my own, and uh, I was reading tons of stuff, uh, but it didn't seem to translate well to my, you know, my, my, my schoolwork. And it was made clear to me that I was not going to get into a college or a university and which at the time I didn't really care. Uh, I wanted to be, I wanted to be Johnny quest. If you know who that is, I don't know if they ever showed Johnny quest in the UK. I don't recall it. Who's Johnny quest. It was, it was a kid's cartoon. Uh, Johnny quest was this, he was like the coolest kid I ever met or ever saw. And his dad was a scientist and, you know, his half brother was an Indian mystic and they traveled around the world and had adventures. And the first time I saw that it was animated, uh, the first time I saw that, I said, that's it. That's what I want to do. Uh, if you, if, if you're familiar with the venture brothers at all, the cartoon, Something else that must have never reached the UK. We, we, we have to get you guys caught up. <laughs> but that was a more modern version that was inspired by Johnny Quest. But anyway, I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to, you know, write things. I wanted to have adventures. And I had a friend in high school who one day comes up to me and says, uh, come with me. I'm going down to the, the recruiting station. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enlist in the Rangers. So come along with me. So, so okay, I, I go with them, and we go see the recruiter. And this was 1977, and the guy had one of these tiny little early portable video players uh, that were not even available yet widely to the public on his desk, like a little TV. And he puts in this like three-minute promotional film about how great it is to be a ranger. And so, you know, they're swinging from ropes and they're, you know, swimming through mud and all that sort of stuff. And so it, it, it finishes and the guy says to me, well, what are you interested in? And I said, well, you know, my, my dad drove a Sherman in the Korean War um, and I like to build model tanks. Maybe uh, he says, oh, I got it for you. You want the armor cavalry. And he puts in a little three minute promotional film because they had, they had films on every possible aspect of the service. You know, if you wanted to be a cook, they had a promotional film for how great it was to be an army cook. Uh, so he puts in this, he puts in this video and I was, that's it. That's what I want to do. And it seemed to, for me to solve a lot of problems, I wouldn't have to, you know, I wouldn't have to try to get into university and fail at it. Uh, I, I wouldn't have to take some horrible job somewhere. I could join the army, join the armor cavalry. Uncle Sam would pay for me to travel the world. And so, uh, you know, it's, it seemed like the way I could accomplish a lot of the things I wanted to accomplish. And so I figured, well, I'll take uncle Sam's dime and I'll, uh, you know, I'll let, I'll let, uh, I'll let the army pay for my adventuring. And so that's what I did. So I enlisted and my friend who was originally wanted to enlist in the Rangers never enlisted at all. Brilliant. Brilliant. How old were you? 
I was 17. And what did your parents think of this? Oh, my father, my father got angry. Uh, you know, I, uh, I came from a working, very working class family, lower working class family. Uh, my father had, like I said, my father had fought in Korea and saw a lot of action in Korea uh, and common to people who had those experiences. He didn't ever really want to talk about it. He did, uh, you know, a lot of what we would today call self-medication. Uh, to try to excise the demons. And when I told him I was going to solve all our problems <laughs> by enlisting, he got upset. He didn't want me to go. The, Vietnam had just sort of ended. Uh, he was very worried. My dad was a Nixon Republican, uh, kind of conservative, not outrageously so, uh, but tended to lean more towards the conservative, hated the hippies, hated the love movement, you know, thought they were all just a bunch of lazy losers who didn't want to work. And when you're like that, it's it's great to, you know, hate the commies and want to, you know, want to invade this country and want to invade that country and want to root out evil. But then when it starts to get close to your family, because I was getting older and Vietnam was just continuing to go. And I remember city, I remember this clearly, uh, here in the States, the, the nightly sort of international news came on at like seven o'clock and my dad liked to watch channel two, the CBS channel and Harry K. Smith was like the, f the famous anchor. He would come on and he would, you know, read the news and they were doing this thing where every night when he came on, he would say, today in Vietnam, 10 Americans died. You know, today in Vietnam, 25 Americans died. Today in Vietnam, five Americans died. Every night, night after night, that was the first thing that they did. How many Americans were killed in Vietnam today? And as it got closer and closer and I got older and older, uh, my father started worrying that, you know, it's great to say you know, where you're against communism, but when there is the growing chance that your son will be sent off and, you know, to fight and probably die, suddenly, you know, <clears throat> being an anti-communist isn't all that much, isn't all that important uh, when it gets that close to your family. So when I told him I, I, I was going to enlist, he got, you know, he said, you know, don't do that. <laughs> But eventually he saw I was I was serious about it and I, I was trying to accomplish certain things with it. Whether whether my explanations made any sense or not, that's you know, that that's another thing. But he saw that I was determined, I was gonna do it. And so he, you know, in the end he gave in and he supported me. And uh so he didn't he didn't say like, Oh, if you enlist, I'm never gonna talk to you again. You know, they my parents supported me and so that was that was helpful. Um, but you know, I was 17 and naive. All I knew is I wanted to go have a life of adventure. When you're that age, the idea of doing something extremely dangerous just never enters your mind. Yeah. I mean, at that age, you feel you're bulletproof. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what is the initial training like in the armored cavalry in late 1970? Right. At the time... Tank school was at Fort Knox. 
you know, where they, where they film Goldfinger. Um, so normally, in le at least in the U.S. Army, for most jobs uh, in the in the, in the U.S. Army, it's called an MOS, Military Occupational Specialty, and everything's got a number. I was a I was a one nine F one zero nineteen Foxtrot ten, which was tank driver private, <laughs> and um, so normally for most jobs you do six weeks of basic training. And then you go off someplace else to do whatever your specialty is going to be, whatever that is. Uh, but with combat arms like armor and infantry and artillery, uh, combat aviation, you do all of that in one go. So when I got off the bus in June 28th, it was right after my birthday, right after I graduated from high school. That shows you how much I wanted to get away from there, how much I hated going to high school. I enlisted and my reporting day was like three days after we graduated from high school. Uh, I didn't even want to hang around any longer than that. I just get me on a bus and get me out of here. So you, you did all of that in one thing. So we had the same drill sergeants stayed in the same barracks for 15 weeks rather than do the sort of basic thing first and then go off someplace else to do your specialty. Uh, so it was all in one shot. And which meant you got screamed at and yelled at and kicked and punched by the same drill sergeants for that whole time. And it was, you know, a, lots of physical endurance. Every day we did this, what we call monkey bars, you know, overhead parallel bars where you swing from one bar to the next and you have to go down and then you got to turn around while you're still hanging there and come back. And it tore all the skin off my hands. Because, you know, I'm there in the summertime. It's Kentucky. It's like 8,000 degrees every day. Uh, and I wound up, my hands were bleeding because I was, you know, you're tearing the skin off. You'd get these calluses and then the calluses would break and there's blood all over the place. And you would think that there'd be a little bit of sympathy, but absolutely none. Uh, I took... Uh, napkins from the mess hall and I got a piece of uh, duct tape and I taped napkins to my hands to soak up the blood so that no one would see. But the drill sergeant saw and he starts screaming at me, you know, what's wrong with your hands, boy? And I showed him and, you know, instead of saying, go see the medic and get those wrapped up, he made me go do more monkey bars. Uh, and that was the, it was very, in a, in a, I guess by today's standards, a politically incorrect way, it, very macho environment. You didn't complain. You didn't go on sick call. I mean, I knew guys in my platoon, one guy literally broke his thumb and didn't go on sick call. He just lived with it. Uh, there was another guy who hurt his elbow really bad and didn't tell anybody uh, because you didn't do that. If you were genuinely sick, you didn't do anything about it. You just sucked it up and walked it off because you knew that if you didn't, the we saw the ridicule that was heaped upon the weak. 
And you didn't want to be the guy who's got to go to sick call because you're not man enough to, you know, take <laughs> take an iron rod to the head. Uh, and so that's that was it was this environment. And so we did all this stuff, uh, fired all kinds of weapons. Uh, we had our the, the basic sidearm in the U.S. Army back then. They don't use them anymore. Was the was the Colt 45 automatic pistol. And so you had to qualify with that. And I, I didn't do well at first because the 45 is kind of a heavy weapon. Fires a big round. It's got a big kickback. And, you know, I'm trying to aim at a target and my hand is shaking and the bullets are going all over the place. And we fired um, the uh, one of the other basic, like in, inside the M60, there were, you had racks for submachine guns. Uh, the driver had a submachine gun, and the loader had a submachine gun. The TC had a shotgun. Um, the the gunner just had his pistol. Uh, but we had those old M3 submachine guns uh, that were called grease guns because it looked like you know the tool a mechanic uses to to grease a car. All this World War II stuff. Uh, you know, I carried the same pistol that my father carried in Korea and that his older brother, Mike carried in world war two. My uncle Mike was a combat engineer. He was in world war two. He, uh, he was at Remagen bridge. He was at the bulge, you know, he saw, saw, yeah, saw all this action, but the weapons I was carrying in the late 1970s were basically the same ones that the U S army had been using since the late 1930s. I mean, the, the Colt 45 first comes into use in 1911 <laughs> and they only got rid of, they only replaced it in like the early nineties. And so you had to qualify with all that fire assault rifles. Uh, at one point they let us sh- shoot um, a genuine AK 47s. God knows where they got them from uh, and Uzis and G threes and all this sort of stuff. And you, you, did a, you learned a lot about maintenance, how to maintain the vehicles, how to drive them, uh, how to fire the main weapons, and you know all the how to qualify. One of the few things I managed to save from my time in the service uh, was my dress uniform, the, the jacket. The pants are gone, and you know, with all my little medals and things, and I have a qualification badge, one that says pistol. And one that says tank weapons, because you had to qualify every year. You had to qualify with these things. And so you learned how to use all these, all these weapons, how to maintain the vehicle, how to fix it, uh, you know, how to, how to repair a thrown track. What happens if you blow a transmission? You know, how did, how do you take the engine out? That's basically what you learned in those 15 weeks, how to operate all this machinery. We learned how to drive not just the tanks, but we learned how to drive armored cars and Jeeps and trucks. And that's, that's what we, that's what I spent my summer in Kentucky doing. They're training you in all of this stuff so that your roles can be interchangeable. Right. They need to be. Right. Technically I was a, a Foxtrot, which was driver. Uh, but, as time went by, you know, you sometimes you drive, sometimes you're a loader, sometimes you're, you're a gunner, eventually get promoted, become a tank commander. You know, there were guys who were really good at shooting the main gun and they tended to be 
to be the, the, the gunners, regardless of what their rank was. Uh, there were guys who weren't that great as, as gunners. So the, they were loaders, uh, you know, drivers. If you were a really good driver, you were a driver. Uh, I, I served in all those positions. Most, most tank crews, I think anywhere, the U S the UK, any place, uh, you eventually serve in all the different positions. When, when does that training end and when do you know where you're going to get posted to? Well, when I joined, they had this thing. If you, if you joined certain jobs, you could get this sort of special, I don't know, consideration uh, that other jobs might not have. And because I was going into the Armored Cav, if you volunteered to serve extra time beyond the basic enlistment, you would get a signing bonus. Uh, and at the time, again, this is 1977, my signing bonus was $2,500, which I thought was a huge amount of money. Um, and the other perk that you got, was you got to choose your first duty station. A lot of guys, even in in the in in the Cav, if they didn't volunteer for the extra time, you didn't get to pick. You didn't get the signing bonus. I didn't get to pick where you went. But since I signed up for everything, uh, I I got the signing bonus and I got to choose uh, where where I was going. And the one thing my dad told me, he says, "Look, wherever you go, do not." volunteer to go to Korea. <laughs> and so that was, you know, that was the one bit of advice he gave me. So I, you know, I sit down and they're like, okay, where do you want to go? I said, well, I don't want to go to Korea. I thought going to China might be fun because I had seen on the news what I thought were U.S. troops in China. And when I told them, I thought, oh, I want to go to China. They said, you can't go to China. I said, oh, yes, I can. I'm, you know, I'm doing all, I, I get to pick wherever I go. And they said, well, yeah, you get to pick wherever you go, but you can't go to China because we don't have troops in China. And I said, but I've seen them on the TV. And, you know, I saw it with Nixon. I saw you. No, you idiot. Those are Marine embassy guards. You're joining the army. Those are the Marines. You can't, the U.S. Army doesn't have troops in China. So he says, pick someplace else. And he says, oh, what, what, what about Korea? We'll send you to Korea. I said, no, I don't want to go to Korea. And I was like, look. And again, I'm a naive 17-year-old. I said, I want to go where the action is. I actually literally said that. I can't even, you know, my, my today self can't believe I actually said, <laughs> I want to go where the action is. And the recruiter says, well, if you want to go where the action is, you want to go to the Iron Curtain. That's the cutting edge. That's where if you're going to be a tanker, that's where you want to be because you're going to be nose to nose with the commies. And that's where it's all going on. And I said, okay, sign me up. That's where I want to go. And so that's, you know, when basic training was over, we all got two weeks vacation. Uh, and then we had a report to our first duty station. Where was that first duty station? Oh, I was in the the Bamberg garrison, um, which was in Bavaria. Oh, we were about a 15-minute drive down the highway from the actual border. 
And the particular area that I was in was called a tri-zone because that was where West Germany, East Germany, and Czechoslovakia sort of came to a point. Uh, and so that's, so that's where we were. So when you arrive in Bamberg, are you just sort of like sent off and said, right, your crew's over there? Uh, yeah, basically, what ha- at the time, Frankfurt was the sort of entry portal. That's where the main reception station was. And so you went there, and they looked through their records, and it was something that was done in that moment. They didn't think about it a second before, and they didn't think about it a second after. They said, oh, this unit in Bamberg needs the body of a tank driver. So you're going to Bamberg. So I was sent down there uh, to the, the, the 3rd Battalion, 35th Armored Regiment, the 335, uh, which was part of the 1st Armored Division. So I wore a 1st Armored Division shoulder patch and uh, the, the 35th Armor uh, unit crest, which you wore on your hat. Uh, and the 35th had seen a lot of action in World War II. And so we had this sort of battle flag that was had all these streamers on it from Alsace-Lorraine and, you know, the Battle of the Bulge and all the, all the various conflicts that, that the unit had served in. And it was treated like a holy relic. You know, you almost heard monks chanting when they would bring this thing out. Uh, and so I get down there and, okay, you're going to A Company, the 335, 2nd Platoon. And I showed up there, and they said, oh, okay, uh, second platoon needs a tank driver. The Alpha 2-5 needs a tank driver. You're going to go on Alpha 2-5. And how did that new crew receive you? How did they treat the newbie? Oh, well, uh, just as you would think. You know, you're the new guy. Uh, they try to trick you into stuff. I did the same thing years later when, when the new guys came in, you know. Uh, you would, it would be a fun thing to add, to, to get a, a new private, to go to the motor sergeant, to ask for a box of spark plugs. Uh, and that was considered hilarious because, you know, diesel engines don't have spark plugs. And so that, that, that sort of thing happened, but it was a, the unit I was in, there were guys from all over the place and there was this sort of underlying understanding because the, the, the brass, the leadership, told you this outright. But there was this understanding that there was a chance, a very good chance, that uh, a conflict could start at any minute. And you had to learn to depend on the other guys in your unit. And so we had, you know... Uh, guys who were atheists, guys who were devout Christians. We had uh, Jewish guys. We had several Muslim guys. Uh, we had straight guys. We had gay guys. And this was, you know, black, white, Latino, every ethnicity you can imagine. And it never really became an issue because you have to depend on these guys for your life. Uh, you learned how to sleep in this vehicle. Uh, for weeks on end it never caused an issue if you were asleep and another guy laid down next to you and 
and rested his head on your stomach because you're in this tight, confined space, and that's how you can learn to to survive. And you drank from the other guy's canteen, and you used the other guy's fork and spoon, and it was just never an issue because we sort of had this tacit understanding that these were the people you were going to have to bet your life on. And so there was a lot of kidding, but there was, a, you know, there, there was good friendships and kind of like a family. If you're in that compressed environment of a tank and also the actual job that you are potentially facing is life-threatening, you will get that bond of friendship that the military generates and I hear countless times in the uh, you know the, the accounts that I record um, can you just talk me through the vehicle that you're talking about the, the tank itself so this is an M60A1 yes M60A1 Rise Passive the Rise Passive the Rise was the improved engine pack uh, a huge you know, Detroit diesel, and that had been improved from, I guess, the uh, earlier version. And the passive was passive night sights, and all of the periscopes. The driver had a had a night vision device that fit into the driver's hatch. The tank commander had a night vision device. Uh, even the loader had a night vision device that could fit up into the loader's hatch. And the uh, the the gunner, the main gun, had was called passive night vision because it it didn't have an internal they were electric you turned them on and they were powered uh but the the light that was used to see was drawn in from the ambient light of the atmosphere the so stars the moon that kind of thing so it was, it was considered passive uh night vision ability so that's why they called it a rise passive uh but yeah it was the m60a1 105 millimeter british made uh, main gun and uh, 7.62 millimeter Belgian coaxial machine gun, and then the the short stumpy M85 50 caliber that was in the in the commander's cupola. The the M60 had a, a, a cupola, a little turret on top of the big turret uh, in which the tank commander sat and had a 50 caliber machine gun. Uh, but they realized, I guess back in Vietnam, when they had the M48s, they had the regular Modus, the, the long-barreled 50 that they figured out how to stick into the cupola on an M48. But it was really awkward, I, I, I suppose. And they said, no, we, we're going to go with a short version of the 50 for the M60. And so you had this heavy 50 caliber machine gun with a shorter barrel, than the than the standard sort of fifty caliber machine gun everybody recognizes from movies, and a short receiver so it could fit into the cupola, and you had a little hand crank that had a firing button on it uh, that was hooked up to an electrical system so you could fire the fifty inside the cupola. Uh, nobody ever did. We trained to do that, but nobody ever did. Uh, when we went to gunnery practice, the tank commanders were always very proud that they could what we call John Wayne it where you have your head out and instead of not actually looking through a scope you would just sort of track the gun and fire and watch the tracers and you know sort of walk the uh, walk the shots in on the target that way and the the more you could do that the 
the the better respected you were because <laughs> you didn't have to look through a gun sight you could just sort of do it by eye we call that john waning it uh that's brilliant that's brilliant how was the 105 millimeter aimed well you had a you had two sights you had a kind of <sighs> we called it a hip sight because the the the, the gunner doesn't have a hatch uh, the gunner has to look out through a periscope or a telescope. And the periscope has got this sort of quick shot reticle built into it uh, where you could sort of lay the gun on target quickly without too much fancy, you know, range finding. And then it had a telescope, which was a bit more accurate. You had a, uh, you had an analog computer. Uh, and you had switches, you could switch whatever kind of ammunition you were going to use and you could set the computer, had like a, a, a sort of a hand grip on it and you would pull it out and turn it to whatever kind of ammunition you were going to use for that shot. And that would cause the gun to move on its own, depending upon the ammunition you were using. So if you were using the high velocity anti-tank rounds, the Sabo rounds, you know, where you, it's basically a steel dart with a plastic case on it. And when you fired it, the whole thing came out the end of the gun barrel and the plastic case fell away and you have the steel dart, which flies down and hits the target. And so that was a much more flat trajectory. So when you set the computer for that, the gun leveled off a lot more than on other ammunition. Uh, we had uh, HEP round, H-E-P, high explosive plastic, which looked like a giant bullet, uh, but it was essentially 15 pounds of high explosive. And that was more of a sort of a looping curveball when it was fired. It kind of went up and then sort of curved around. And so the, when you set the gun computer, the, you could see the gun barrel would raise up a little bit to, to compensate. So wherever you turn the turret or wherever you turn the gun, the computer would compensate the gun barrel to make up for the way the particular round you were going to fire would fly through the air. And did you need to be stationary to fire the gun or could you fire on the move? You could do both. We had a stabilizer. The turret was stabilized. And uh, that way you would you could turn this thing on and it would simply hold the gun at whatever position you placed it in. And so regardless of how the, the body of the tank moved around, the gun would continue to traverse on its own to stay wherever you placed it. So you could, you could do that. And we practiced at, at live gunnery exercises. We practiced shooting on the move. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing 
that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Did you practice bailing out of the tank if it was hit? Oh, sure. That was, an, that was another sort of, we show you how to do this so that you think you could actually do it. You know, if your tank gets hit, you practice how to get out, what to do. Um, the reality is if you're in a tank and it gets hit with an anti-tank rocket, you're not getting out. You're, you're, you're going to fry. You're going to be melted alive. Uh, but we did practice. Everybody had a specific thing to do. The driver grabbed the submachine gun that's in the driver's compartment. The loader grabbed the submachine gun that was in the loader's position. The gunner grabbed the coaxial machine gun. We all grabbed as much belt ammunition as we possibly could. The tank commander bailed out of the top with the shotgun. And, you know, you get on the ground. You use the tank to hide for a minute until you make sure everybody's there. Uh, and then you you move to the rear uh, to you know where the where medical units were where the the, the company would have a, a a kind of designated rally area where you went to if you got separated or um, how you could deal with burns but you know the, the the thing is if a tank gets penetrated by an any tank round of any kind the ammunition goes off the ammunition sets off the gas, you know, the, the diesel fuel, the whole thing blows up and you, you don't really survive it. And you can't really hide next to it because the tank is exploding. Even if you do make it out, uh, the tank is exploding. So you're not really going to uh, get a chance to get away. I know in the M1, and this is maybe the same for the, for the Leopard or the Challenger, uh, the ammunition is, ammunition is kept in special compartments so that if it explodes, it explodes out of the vehicle rather than into the vehicle. And that's another one of these things where they think um, you could actually survive this. And I never had to find out, and I hope I never do have to find out, but I can't imagine that you would actually. You know, again, based on what I've seen in news footage coming out of the Ukraine, one hit and it's you're basically done. If you're lucky enough to have been standing in a hatch, the explosion from the inside, if you were lucky, might blow you out of the vehicle and you land on the ground somewhere. Uh, but, you know. Can you just tell me about the uh, the NBC training or how it was handled? Uh, nuclear biological chemical. It was sometimes called ABC, Atomic <laughs> Biological and Chemical. Uh, sometimes CBR, chemical, biological, radiological. Uh, but it was all basically, you know, nuclear chemical warfare. And I got sent to NBC school in Germany. And then I went to it again back in the States just for the fun of it. And what you learn, it's basically nuclear chemical defense. I mean, we didn't have, we didn't carry chemical weapons with us. That wasn't our job. Uh, we wouldn't be firing nuclear rounds at anybody, but we had to be trained to protect against it. And so 
uh, again, in Germany, because this was going to happen, we carried gas masks, we carried these special things called mop suits, mission-oriented protective posture. Uh, kind of like hospital scrubs, but designed to protect you from chemicals in the air. And so, you know, you'd be all suited up in these things. With them. You, you weren't allowed to call them gas masks. You were supposed to call them protective masks. But they were gas masks. And, like, for example, because I was the NBC NCO on my tank, I carried this thing about the size of a shoebox. We called them sniffers. And you turned it on, had a battery in it, and it would draw air into it, and it would go through a series of filters to see if there was any contaminants in the air. And if there were, this it had a siren in it, it would start screaming, you know, and that would be the signal to put your masks on and, and all that. Uh, but in in I learned all this great stuff in chemical warfare school. They showed us these movies. Some of which you can see on YouTube from back in the 1950s where the U.S. government, I'm sure the British government did something similar to this. When they set off atom bombs out there on like Bikini Island and, you know, all those places or, or in Arizona or New Mexico, they would take animals and they would put animals, live animals out on the firing range and then set off the atom bomb. There were certain animals, especially goats and pigs, that their lungs and their internal organs and their skin reacted in a, in a way very similar to the way human skin and organs would react to radiation and fallout and all that. And so they would nuke these animals and film it and study what happened to the animals. So I got to see all these bizarre films of, you know, pigs roasting alive uh, under an atom bomb and, and rats. And um, I think we saw one where they had horses. And so you get to watch these really disturbing. This is what happens to the human body when you're, uh, you know, this is why you have to wear a gas mask. If, we had actually gone to war. Like in Germany, we carried this stuff with us. Inside your gas mask, you had a decontamination kit. In case you got some of the sticky stuff on your skin, you could decontaminate yourself so you wouldn't melt. Uh, you know, And if you, if you breathed in nerve agent, they had these atropine injectors. It looked like a giant novelty pencil um, that was full of atropine, which is a, sort of like a heart stimulant. And... If you got gassed and you didn't get your mask on quick enough and you breathed in some of this stuff, you would basically, your nerves would start to shatter and you'd start shaking violently and you're, you know, and you were supposed to take, theoretically, you were supposed to be able to reach into your gas mask bag, take out one of these giant things and it had an auto injector with a huge needle in it and a spring. And... Because it was thought you wouldn't be able to actually work a hypodermic needle. All you, the thing was designed so that all you had to do is grab it and bash it against your leg. And that would set off the spring. The needle would shoot into your leg and inject you with the antidote. And hopefully you don't die a horrible death. And one of the other things, as NBC NCO, one of my jobs was 
they taught us how to calculate the rough size of an atom bomb explosion. And even when I was being taught this, I thought this was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard of. Because you're out there in front. And so presumably, the atom bomb is going off in front of you. And so you're supposed to call up to higher headquarters and say, an atom bomb just went off in front of me, as if no one would have noticed. And the way you were taught to calculate the rough megatonnage of the bomb is I'm supposed to stand up on the tank turret, take off my dog tag, my ID tag, my metal ID tag, hold it out arm's length, and sort of position it with your eye against the mushroom cloud. And by comparing the relative size of the mushroom cloud to your dog tag, would tell you, is it a 5 megaton bomb? Is it a 10 megaton bomb? You know, whatever. I was then supposed to call, uh, get on the radio, and call up and say, you know, a 5 megaton atom bomb just went off in front of our position. Just in case you didn't notice, you know, that's what all the commotion is. And it always made me laugh because how would I even get to do that? Because as I'm standing there holding out my dog tag, trying to call, you know, up to the battalion, the cord, the radio cord from my helmet to the radio in the tank has melted. And then my helmet is melting. And then my dog tag is melting. And my arm is melting. And I'm melting. But somehow, they think, I'm going to be able to contact someone and tell them what's going on. So it just seems so preposterous that, you know, we actually trained to do this thing that we would never actually be able to do. Yeah, that seems crazy. Crazy. And what what was your readiness status like at Bamberg? We were considered on the front lines. Uh, the tanks uh, carried live ammunition on them 24 hours a day. Uh, we practiced because we knew that our our billets, our, our barracks were already targeted by the Russians, by the Warsaw Pact, to drop nukes and rockets on us. Uh, and so one of the things we practiced, we spent a lot of time practicing, was getting out of the garrison uh, in like 15 minutes. Because we knew if you were any slower than that, the whole city was going to get vaporized and that would be that would be it. So we spent a lot of time practicing on alerts where they would wake you up at like 3 in the morning. And you'd have to scramble out there and sirens would go off. And we kept everything on the vehicles. Uh, the, the vehicles were, were constantly topped up with fuel. What did you think about the possibility of the Warsaw Pact crossing the border? Did you think they would actually do it? Well, we didn't really think about it that much. The leadership always assumed that we were going to be going to war with the Warsaw Pact any day now. You know, it wasn't like, oh, maybe sometime in the far off distant future, this will happen. They were all convinced it was going to happen now. And so when I first showed up at the 335 uh, to my company, the company commander, uh, after I was there for a few days, called me and a couple of other newbies in to sort of, you know, welcome to the eunuch, that kind of thing. And he looks at us and he says, the one thing I want you guys to be clear about 
is what our job is. And I'm thinking, well, our, our job is to, you know, drive tanks, shoot guns, blow stuff up. And he says, our job is to die. And I thought he was kidding. I thought he was making a joke. And then I quickly realized, no, he's not making a joke. He's serious. Our job was, should the Warsaw Pact invade Western Europe? Should they come across the border? It was our job to th- not just our my unit, but all the units that were there, the American units, British, Dutch, West German, Canadian, everybody on our side, all, all NATO. It was our job to throw ourselves at this juggernaut because we just assumed that when they came, when the Warsaw Pact came, they would be coming in these just waves of tanks and artillery and helicopter gunships. And it would just be this kind of ocean of vehicles charging at us, blasting away. And it was our job to throw ourselves under this, not to stop them because that was assumed to be impossible, uh, but to slow them down. And while we slowed them down, that's when reforger would kick in. And all those units from states, from Canada, from the UK, uh, presumably while we were doing that, uh, those other units would come come over and they would actually stop the Russians. And it always reminded me, there's this scene in Kelly's Heroes where... Uh, Clint Eastwood says to Donald Sutherland, I, you know, the tank commander, I just need you to occupy the three tigers for a little while. And Oddball says indignantly, the only way I have of occupying them is to let them shoot holes in me. And that was basically our job. Uh, they said, if this thing comes off, we're all going to die, but we'll slow them down enough for others to come along and sort of stop them. It's funny your Kelly's Heroes reference because I was looking at the photos you sent me just before we came on the uh, call, uh-huh. and uh, there's a black and white one of three you and two other crew right. members, uh-huh. and it looks like a, a movie still out of Kelly's Heroes. Uh, to be a good tanker, there were two movies you had to almost be able to quote verbatim. One was Kelly's Heroes, and the other one was the Humphrey Bogart Sahara, which I don't know if you're familiar with. I'm less familiar with that one, um, but I am familiar with Kelly's Heroes. So I guess you you didn't want any negative waves. Right. We didn't want any negative waves. Uh, We didn't. People have asked me, were you scared? You know, because again, I mean, one of the things that always gets me about our view of the Cold War. I'm a historian. I teach world history. And one of the things we do is that towards the end of the semester, uh, we do a section on the Cold War. And people always say, weren't you scared? You know, because again, it's easy to look back on the Cold War today and say, well, nothing ever happened, you know, really. So there was never a chance that you were going to get injured or killed or whatever and i said well yeah luckily but at the time this was going to happen it was not a maybe it was not you know this was going to happen this was going to be the result 
we're all going to be dead. Uh, you know, any of us who weren't killed outright would the, the wounded would drown in a sea of radioactive blood. Uh, and it's difficult today. I've had people tell me to my face, oh, well, you didn't really serve. You know, I wasn't in Vietnam. I was too young to go to Vietnam. I was too old to go to the Gulf. So I was right in between. And, you know, I've had people tell me, oh, that really wasn't real service. You were just over there sort of, you know, filling up space. And I said, yeah, in the end, yes. Uh, but at the time, that was, we, they were very serious. We were told to write letters home to our family to let them know that there was a good chance we weren't coming back. But because we were all really young, you know, you're, you're like 17, 18, 19, 20, old guys were like 22. Uh, and, you know, you, you just never, as you said before, nobody's, nobody's going to, nobody's going to, I can't get hurt. <laughs> uh, you know, bring, bring the commies on, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kick their asses. Uh, I never lost a minute of sleep worrying about, despite the fact that they told us constantly we were going to die, I uh, never lost a minute of sleep worrying about whether I was going to make it or not. People often view the Cold War through a lens of hindsight, and uh, you know the comment I always make is, nobody knew the wall was going to come down. Right, of course. That was never, that was never a consideration. The Soviet Union looked like it was going to be there forever. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was a real chance of either by accident or design of a war starting in Europe or, or elsewhere in the world. Yeah, we used to do uh, alerts, practices for when the balloon went up. And we never really – for us, it was, it was just another thing to do. It was annoying because you had to get up at 3 in the morning when you didn't really want to, especially if you were out the night before. And, but there were a couple of times where there was just a different vibe to what we were doing. Uh, the officers weren't joking around like they normally did. We actually moved, we didn't just go up into the track park and get the vehicles ready to go. We actually drove out of the track park to the rally area in the nearby forest uh, where we met up with uh, ammunition vehicles we, we kept the main gun ammunition on the tank, uh, but we didn't keep the machine gun ammunition on the tank. So, but we stopped and we got machine gun ammunition and they topped up the fuel tanks and there was just this kind of air. Now, they never came out and said, oh, oh guess what, guys? <laughs> Last night, we almost all died. World War Three almost started. Uh, they didn't tell you that because, you know, they didn't really want it to get out. Now, there were a number of cases where uh, it it came to a point. I, most people really don't, even back then, most people don't really know. There are the famous cases, you know, uh, where missiles went on alert and bombers were scrambled. Uh, but there were several instances where we came pretty close and. Luckily, somebody somewhere in the halls of power did something and everything sort of calmed down. Uh, and most people never really knew that was happening. 
because I guess they didn't want us, you know, if you're writing home, uh, dear mom and dad, World War Three almost happened yesterday, you know, because that would eventually get out. <laughs> and they didn't really want it to get out. Uh, they wanted to play it down. They didn't want to make it seem like we were really standing on this sort of hair edge constantly. And I guess from a training point of view, they want you to think it's the real thing each time you do these scrambles. Right, but you knew most of the time it wasn't. Uh, but there there were several times where, um, like, for example, in my company, the company commander, the executive officer, and the first sergeant all had their own Jeep. And we would cycle through. It was a duty. We'd cycle through, and you would be like the first sergeant Jeep driver for a month, you know, and then you go back to your own platoon. And... One of these alerts, it was like February, and it was it was really cold, and the first sergeant's jeep had a you know canvas top on it, which they took off, which they never did. They took it off, and there was a a, a pintle mount to put an M60 machine gun on, which again which we never did, except this time. So I'm in the driver's seat, first sergeant sitting next to me, and there's this new guy. Behind us, he's he's manning the M60. We all have ammunition. We've all been handed ammunition. Um, I've got a 12-gauge slide-action shotgun on my lap. And you just knew something. This wasn't the normal thing. This wasn't just a practice. There was something else. And the first sergeant sitting there. Now, this guy had served two tours in Vietnam. You know, He seemed old, but he was probably 30. And he's sitting there and he must have noticed I was a little nervous and the guy in the back was a little nervous. And he said, don't worry, kid, dying's easy. It's living that's tough. And, you know, you can usually tell when people are, you know, putting on airs or trying to, you know, give you a hard time. Uh, But this guy was serious as a heart attack. And not only did that not make me feel better, it made me feel more scared. Uh, you know, I, I have since become a doctor of philosophy, and I've read a lot of world-famous philosophers and their views of life and, you know, all that stuff. And to this day, I still say to myself, the most real philosophy of life i've ever learned was from my first sergeant who told me dying was easy it's living that's hard did you know that your account with amazon can help me get new guests on the show just search for cold war conversations on amazon and leave a review for the podcast thank you because the period you served the um Red Army faction, the West German terrorist group, was quite active. Oh yeah, we were always we were always on the on the watch for them. We were told be careful if you know because when we went on exercises, we went on exercises at least once a month, and we when we did field exercises, we went actually out into the community. You know, we were driving around German towns and on highways and streets, and so you'd be a you'd you know there'd be a line of tanks up the up the road with cars and buses driving between them. Uh, and we were always told, you know, keep an eye out for cars that get a little too close to you. Cause most times the German civilians 
when they'd see a company of 17 tanks come driving down the road, they'd sort of get out of the way. Uh, but we were always being told to watch for civilian cars that got a little too close because the, the Red Army faction was around and they might try to steal stuff and get a hold of weapons. Uh, we had a time where we stopped uh, to sort of rest for a little bit. We we're on our way. We we're road marching somewhere and get down off the tank to stretch your legs, you know. And we were always supposed to bring our weapons with us when we got down. You had to bring your sensitive items, your gas mask, your pistol, shotgun, submachine gun, whatever it was you're carrying. And one of the younger, even younger guys, I keep saying young guys, I was 18 or 19. One of the even younger guys, a loader, he gets down. He's got his submachine gun with him. He puts it down on the fender of the tank and walks off to take a leak by a tree. He comes back, the grease gun's gone. And the whole place just went, I don't know if you're allowed to use bad language on on your on your podcast, but the whole place goes apeshit because a machine gun has gone missing. And the MPs show up. The, the, this poor kid, I mean, he was visibly shaking because he thought he had lost uh, a, a machine gun, and if that had been the case, I mean, this guy would still be doing, he would still be peeling potatoes today if that had actually happened. And everybody immediately thought terrorists saw this, drove by, saw this thing laying there, and just snatched it up and drove off with it. It turns out that some little kids had come by to stare at the tanks, which they always did. Whenever we stopped anywhere, seemingly out of thin air, uh, you know, a horde of little German kids would show up. Uh, and they saw the, the, the grease gun sitting there, and they picked it up, and they walked off with it. And they were found, like, you know, off in the woods, not very far from where we were, but off in the woods, you know, like running around playing army. Uh, and so they managed to recover it. But their first, the, the, the MPs, the military police, their first thought was, uh, Red Faction, who was following everybody around, saw an opportunity and just grabbed this and went off. What were your rules of engagement in a circumstance like that? Uh, we were not a lot like when we were on the actual border. We were we carried our weapons. We were not allowed to. First of all, you're not allowed to cross the border, although we did it. Um, you're not allowed to physically cross the border. You know, because there were people were trying to escape all the time, and we'd, we'd see them, and you were not allowed to help them until they got on our side of the border. If they got right up to the border, you couldn't do anything. The minute they stepped across, then you could help. And you weren't allowed to shoot at the, the Czech or East German guards unless they shot at us first. And they were always careful never to shoot at us first. Because we were all just itching to fire back. But we didn't because, you know, we had very strict rules of engagement that unless you were personally being threatened uh, by a border guard, you weren't allowed to, you know, do anything. And you weren't allowed to help civilians who were trying to cross over until they got on our side of the border. Then you could help them. Can you describe what the border fortifications actually look like in your sector? There were places where, with the walls and the barbed wire and the dogs and the landmines, that did literally come right up to the actual 
border on the ground. But there were places like where we were down in Bavaria, down in the tri-zone, where if you didn't know this was the border, you wouldn't know. Uh, because this sort of classic wall with the dogs and all that was set way back from where we were. Uh, they had signs. Uh, there, was, there was one sign that said, uh, tension 50 meters to the border. And you couldn't bring vehicles past that sign. Then there was the sign that said Landesgrenz, land border, uh, the white sign, which was on the actual, literal, physical boundary line. Uh, and there were places where, you know, the Iron Curtain was really just a series of plastic traffic cones, just to give a sort of a basic uh, idea of where this thing was. And you, were, you, you could, if you wanted to, you weren't supposed to, uh, but you could physically walk from one side to the other. Uh, I uh, I think I sent you a picture of me standing under the sign that says Lannisgrens. Yeah, and it looks like you're slightly behind it, are you? Yes. And when, you know, because I, I, I'm, I'm a souvenir hunter, when anybody who mattered wasn't looking, I took a crowbar and I crowbarred one of those signs off the wall. And I brought it home with me. I still have it. It's it's on the wall in my living room as we speak, uh, complete with a bullet hole through it. Uh, You've got to share a photo of that for me. Yeah. Okay. I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, you weren't you weren't supposed to cross, no matter what. Although we did it sometimes just for the fun of it. You know, what are they going to do? We're going to cross the. You know. Did you know where you would go to if they came across the border? Did you have sort of like pre-planned positions? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Bamberg sits on, I think it's Highway 70, uh, but it's sort of an east-west highway that runs towards Czechoslovakia. And I guess in pre-Cold War days, it actually went into Czechoslovakia. Uh, But we did. We had positions. We practiced moving into uh where we would fight the cold war from um our belief was that what would happen is we would move into as long as we got out of the got out of the city fast enough and didn't didn't get nuked we would move into these positions and this you know this flood of russian armor would become flying at us and we'd get a couple of good punches in before the last of us were shot to pieces. But yeah, we did have forward positions that we that we designed to go to, not just sort of randomly wandering around. Presumably, your tactic was fire, move, fire, move, and, right? You and just mo- stay mobile. move. Yeah, you move into defilade. Uh, you pop up. You get off a couple of rounds. You back away to the next place, and then you know, pop off a couple of rounds and. You would do this, and then you would move, and then you'd do that, and you would move. We drove all over. I mean, we road marched relentlessly all year long in all weather to the point where we learned the the M60A1 has railing. I think they did away with this. I don't think I don't think the M1 or the Leopard or the Challenger have these things. We called them grunt rails. Uh, G-R-U-N-T. It's an old Vietnam phrase. Um, ground replacement untrained. And 
the grunt rail ran around the outside of the turret so that when you had to do this, and we practiced doing this too, that when you'd have infantry with you, uh, they would ride on the tank and they would hang on to this railing. Hence, you know, infantry is a grunt, grunt rail. And so if we were driving, we were road marching somewhere, if you had a urinate, you can't stop. You can't just pull off into a, you know, a, a, a roadside gas station and use the bathroom. Uh, and so we would, you know, you would climb out onto the fender um, and you would unpack, if you will, and you would hold on to yourself with one hand and hold on to the grunt rail with the other hand and you would pee off the side of the tank as you're going down the highway. Uh, you couldn't really defecate doing that, although I think there were a couple of guys who tried it. Uh, but that's how, you know, you you either held it in or you learned to balance out on the fender of the tank driving down the Autobahn at, you know, 25 miles an hour, peeing off the Autobahn, usually into traffic. This this is the sort of detail we're looking for, Brian. Yeah, and you know the the the, the German the German you know the Germans would like shake their fists at us, you know. <laughs> How did the German civilians sort of treat you? Because you're driving around their country, right. crashing their mm-hmm. roads, fields, God knows what. But presumably, they accept that you 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 know there's a good reason that you need to be there. You know, nobody ever picketed or yelled at us. Occasionally, people would. Uh, I remember one time we were going through Erlangen and I th- it had rained the night before. So everything's wet and we were in a field. We were coming out of the field and now we're driving down the street. And of course the tracks on the tank are covered in mud because you were driving through the mud. And so as you're driving, because everything's wet, it's just throwing wet mud everywhere. And we're going down the street, and I look up, and there's this little old German lady. She must have been like 800 years old. And she's got one of those old-fashioned handmade brooms, you know, which is just a stick with branches tied to the end of it. And she was sweeping up in front of her store from the rain. And now here comes this line of tanks is just throwing mud all over the sidewalk. She got mad. She was like shaking her broom at us and cursing at us as we drove by. But generally, it it went okay. Uh, you know, there were times where if we were out in the field and we were stopped somewhere for the evening, because we did we did do maneuverings at night, but occasionally we would stop for the night. And if there was a town nearby, we'd sneak away and go into the town and go, because every little town, no matter how small, had a guest house. So you'd go in and you you know order a beer or a bratwurst or something, but we're out in the field. And so we get off the tank. You have to take, you know, we have our helmets. We're in our helmets. We're in our body armor, gas masks, you know, pistols, submachine guns. And suddenly, you know, half a dozen guys all, all kitted out like that come walking into a guest house uh, like we're going to rob the place. And there would usually be a moment, you know, of tension. And then and it'd be like, oh, no, 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 beer bitter, beer bitter. <laughs> and everybody, now it's a party. Uh, you know, so we always had a good time. And we never really had, you know, an issue with the civilians. E- even when, like when, like I said, when we drove, when we went off the streets into the fields, we were driving around on farmers' fields. And, you know, when you get a battalion of tanks and a battalion of, 
armored infantry driving around your cornfield, by the time we're done, your cornfield is gone. It's just totally destroyed. And the farmers didn't usually get upset because they knew they could then send a bill to the U.S. government for not only the cost of the crops that were lost, but for money to repair the field. So some farmers were almost happy when we came along and we destroyed their fields because they actually made money off of it. I'm sure I heard somewhere that normally following you would have been a Jeep with a bag of Deutschmarks to make on-spot compensation payments for fences getting chewed up and, and yeah I don't, I don't know about that but i know that that you know most farmers knew or knew somebody who knew how you would get in contact uh contact with the german government would then get in contact with the u.s government and they would get compensated for what we destroyed uh one of our tanks once dro- drove through accidentally drove through a barn you know and destroyed the barn and uh so people sort of got used to because in you know there were there were nato troops there from 1945 you know there really wasn't a time from you know d day uh up through the the 1990s uh, or even into the 21st century, where there weren't foreign troops running around uh, what they used to call West Germany. So it really wasn't unusual to see. Did you do any exercises with other nations? You know, I want to know, how, how well did you get on with the Brits? Oh, we got along fine. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite stories was w- there was one time we were doing it was our it was our turn to go up on the border, and you would you know you'd have a couple of gun jeeps and you'd drive around and you had checkpoints you had to go to and you you had a, like a clipboard with you know a page you tick off this and tick off that and we went here and then we went there and everything is fine, uh, and occasionally we would go with other nations, and we went with a British group once, great guys. And we're driving around, you know, it was like three Jeeps and the man who was in charge, whoever the highest ranking person is, is in charge of that particular patrol. British Sergeant Major, right out of central casting, the mustache, the impeccable uniform. He's got his Sergeant Major's baton under his arm. You know, he's got a his his, his holster is polished leather. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole thing, uh, like, like something right out of Zulu, you know, and the Russians were allowed to spy on us and they had this thing called the Soviet military liaison mission, smell them. And they were cars full of Russian Warsaw Pact agents who had permission to drive around in West Germany and watch what we were doing. And they were called Smellum cars because they had special license plates that had like a Russian hammer and sickle on it. Uh, and they would drive around and they'd take pictures. And you'd see them. Uh, we were under strict orders never to approach them. Uh, don't talk to them. 
no matter what they did, if they were just watching, you just sat and watched them back. If they were doing anything, you would call up to hire headquarters to Intel and intelligence officers would come out and, you know, talk to them or whatever. But we're driving around and we pull into this little town and it was in, it was in the uh, summertime and it was really hot and there was a guy selling ice cream. So we all wanted to get ice cream cones. So we're getting our ice cream cones and suddenly around the corner comes one of these smell them cars full of guys. They all got cameras. They all got little movie cameras. They're snapping away at us. And we were told, don't go near them. You know, just let them do whatever. It's not your job to, I mean, if they come over and they try to assault you, you can protect yourself. But other than that, don't do anything. And so they're, they're parked across the street from us. The Sergeant Major, he goes over to them. And he taps on the window of the car. And the guy, the driver, rolls the, car, the window down a little bit. And in like a, at least for an American, a stereotype British accent. He says, you gentlemen can't be here. You, off you go. There's, there's a good man. Off you go. I remember that so clearly. Off you go. And the guy, the driver said something to him in, I think in German, that was, let's just say, derogatory. They don't realize that the sergeant major speaks fluent German. So he says the same thing again. Off you go, but in German. The guy rolls the window down and spits on his uniform like a big honking loogie, you know. And now I'm standing there. I don't know what the hell to do because <laughs> they didn't prepare us for this. They just told us stay away. Uh, and the sergeant major looks at his jacket. He grabs the handle the door handle in the car, tears the door out, grabs the driver, drags him out of the car, and throws him face down onto the the onto the road, onto the concrete. And I, I'm freaking out because I don't know what to do. Do I go for my gun? Do I, you know, what do we do? And the other guys in the car, they, they start to act like they're going to get out. And so we sort of walk over to stand next to the sergeant major to kind of back him up, you know. I have no idea what I'm doing or what I'm supposed to do. He picks the guy up off the ground and actually sort of dusts his jacket off, puts the guy back in the car, and he says, be careful, sir, you'll get hurt that way. Now off you go, there's a good fella. And they drive off. And... I'm standing there and the Sergeant Major turns to me with this huge smile on his face. He says, don't worry, lad. Sometimes you just got to know how to talk to people. Brilliant. And so, you know, the, the, we, we had, we enjoy, you know, we, we did, we did exercise with British units. We did exercise with Dutch units. Uh, we ran into a French unit one time, you know, because we're eventually, we're all supposed to be doing this together. That's a great, great story. 
And, you know, God knows if anybody complained, you know, because like I said, we were, we had strict orders. Don't go near these guys. Don't touch them. Don't speak to them. Uh, but, you know, I was a, I was a PFC. I wasn't a Sergeant Major. And Sergeant Major gets to do whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. So did you see any incidents along the border while you were patrolling? It depends upon what you mean by incident. Well, you tell me what you saw. Okay. Well, w- there, there was once we were at a checkpoint just standing there, you know. Uh, we always, the, they always took pictures of you when you, when you drove by. And so we would like, you know, give them the middle finger and laugh at them. And, you know, sometimes guys would like pull their pants down and shake their ass at, at, at them. And they were taking pictures. So there's, there's, I, there must be in some archive somewhere, you know, in the former Soviet union, there's got to be a photograph of my naked ass uh, pointing at, you know, the, the, the guards on the other side. Um, but we were there once and suddenly there's this big commotion and there was a guy trying to escape, came running, running across the field, uh, somehow managed to not step on a landmine. Uh, and this was in an area where the fences weren't too insurmountable and there weren't any dogs. The, there's a tower, there's a guard tower, guy in the guard tower fires a burst of machine gun fire at the guy who's running into the ground guy keeps on running now we're that now has our attention because somebody's shooting a gun second burst guy goes down now again we can't do anything i mean this guy was laying in the on, on the ground 15 feet from me and you know your instinct is to run over and help him uh, but we couldn't, and they came over and they picked the guy up and they carried him off. I have no idea what happened to him. Uh, did he did he live? Did he die? Whatever. Uh, but yeah, the, I I had one encounter like that. Must have been really tough. I mean, being that close up and uh, not being able to help. Right, because that's what you want to do. You know, we're all, we all have first aid training, you know, all that. Uh, but they were, it was, it was one thing to sneak across the border in the woods when no one saw, you know, jerking around. Uh, but it was another thing to do it right out there in the broad daylight when there was just a shooting incident. And now everybody's there, everybody's watching. And so you couldn't, you had to stay on our side, uh, no matter what you thought. And they, you know, Stand there while this some poor guys sitting there bleeding. You know the role that you had was to see if you could see any untoward activity on the other side that could be a prelude. Yeah, we were always filling out forms, and you know, uh, did you see a concentration of troops here? Did you see a concentration of troops there? The incident which. Besides that, the shooting one, of course, the incident, which I remember the most, which, if, I don't know, changed my view of this whole thing, uh, you know, because I grew up in the 60s and the 70s when, you know, everybody's worried about the commies, all pop culture, 
you know, the James Bond movies were sort of set in that, the early ones were sort of set in that Cold War world. Uh, you know, movies, horror movies and science fiction movies were just thinly veiled. You know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers are, are, are not, the, the seed pods are communism. Uh, the invaders from Mars weren't about Martians. It was about communism. And so this was sort of ingrained in us that communism was bad. It was awful. They were going to rape your dog and kill your mom and steal your whatever. And so when you grow up having that, listening to that constantly, you sort of come to believe it. And one day we were out there and we're walking around doing a walking patrol and we heard that sound of, you know, when someone's trying to start their car and it won't start. So we go walking over and right on the other side, we're, it's sort of a woodsy area. Right on the other side, there is a Jeep, a Russian Jeep. And like four or five border guards, they can't get the Jeep started. They got the hood up. You know, everybody's heads under the hood. So there was like four or five of us on our patrol. We're all armed to the teeth. And they look up. They see us. They start to go for their weapons. Luckily, the sergeant that was with us spoke enough German to, you know, say, oh, you know, it's okay. It's okay. You know, stand down. we're We're not here to start any trouble. So everybody puts their guns away. And so we go over. We didn't even think twice about it. We went over and they got car trouble. So we're going to help them get the Jeep started. And it turns out that like the battery cable on the battery was a little loose. So we tighten that up. Boom. Jeep starts right up. Now it's lunchtime. We all had food with us. So we break out our food and we basically are having a picnic on the wrong side of the iron curtain. And we're sitting there talking and a couple of their guys could speak a little bit smattering of English. You know, we could speak a little smattering of German and we're standing, we're talking and this is not an encounter between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. This is a bunch of 20 something guys on a weekend playing with their cars. And as we're standing there doing this, I begin to notice that the Jeep that they have, it's a real piece of junk. You know, the fenders are all bent. and I mean, our equipment took a real pounding as well. But, uh, you know, it was kind of rusty and the, the seat covers were all torn. And then I noticed their uniforms are a little shabby. Uh, you know, I'm, I, we're in brand new uniforms. It was it had just been payday, so I had tons of money in my pocket. All of our equipment was relatively new. And I'm looking at these guys that I'm thinking, you know, they don't want to kill me. They don't want to kill my dog or rape my mom. Uh, they can barely feed themselves. They don't want to kill me. I don't want to kill them. What the hell are we doing here? You know, why are we doing this? And it really sort of helped mold me as a political animal. 
And I thought, you know, for God's sake, all these years, I've been lied to. These people don't want to invade the West. They don't, want, they don't hate us because of our freedoms. They want to be free too. Um, and so it, it, it really sort of changed my outlook on, on what this whole thing was about. And I, I, I became, maybe not cynical, but I, I began to understand that, well, yeah, maybe guys way up at the top of this pile, they all want to, you know, rule the world or whatever. Uh, but the people down at, the, at my level, I don't have to worry about them because they don't really want to go to war with us. We don't really want to go to war with them. Uh, and, you know, it, it sort of changed my whole outlook on what this whole thing was about. I mean, that, that's a really interesting incident you, you've described there. I mean, who made the decision to actually cross the line and go and help them? It was just sort of spontaneous. We, we didn't. Th- this was at a point where there wasn't an actual physical wall on the border. It was all just open, and so we just walked over. You know, you see somebody in the parking lot of uh, you know the grocery store, and they can't get their car started. You walk over. Oh, you need any help? That's what it was. It wasn't like some big decision was made. We just all sort of sort of spontaneously did it. And if there had been anybody important around, you know, uh, first of all, we probably would not have done it if there had been officers around. But if we'd have gotten caught, we'd have gotten in big trouble. Yeah. So you you didn't report the huge. No, not that one. <laughs> I think, as, as you said, sort of pretty early on, some areas of the border weren't clearly defined, and particularly if they're in the, the wilder areas but um yeah that's the first time i've heard of actually crossing the line and uh you know assisting or conversing with them were they east german or czech these guys i think they were czechs and you know it 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 sounds a lot more dramatic than it actually was it was really just you know a bunch of guys uh working on their hot rod I think the an East German border guard would probably not do that. Right, right. One of the things I liked about it was that I can't read Czechoslovakian, uh, but there was clearly a nickname painted on the side of the Jeep. And I thought, oh, that's great, because you know, we do the same thing. <laughs> All our tanks had nicknames. My tank had a nickname, everybody's vehicles had nicknames. And so I thought, oh that's you know, that's interesting that they do the same thing we do. Yeah, I reckon their one was called Pile of Crap by the sound of it. Right, yes, yeah. I, I'm sure it was some sort of, you know, ironic name. Uh, but that was a very common thing for people to name vehicles. What was your tank called? Uh, Dreamboat Annie. And who was Annie? <laughs> who, was, who was it named after? Uh, there, there, was a, there was a band that was really popular at the time called Heart. And the Wilson sisters, two sisters, um, Nancy was the guitar player, red hot guitar player. And Anne was the singer. And they put out this record right before I, right before I enlisted called Dreamboat Annie. It was their first album. 
And, uh, you know, I fell hopelessly in love with Ann Wilson. And so when I got there, uh, I was assigned to the Alpha 2.5, and it didn't have a name. A lot, of, a lot of the vehicles had names, not all of them, but the Alpha 2.5 didn't have a name. So I asked my tank commander, I said, oh, can I name that? And he didn't care. It's like, well, whatever. Uh, and so I, you know, I went to the motor pool. I got all those little metal, you know, those little metal stencil letters that sort of fit together. And boom, 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 Dreamboat Annie. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, you end up being a tank commander. Is that correct? Yeah, eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how long does it take you to move up from being the, the newbie to being a tank commander? How many years is that? Once my Germany stint was over, the army chose where I went next. They chose my next duty station. And when I left Germany, I was a, a, a corporal. And they sent me to Kansas, of all places. When, when it came time for my, to get my orders to go to my next place. Because you don't know until you open. You literally don't know where you're going until you open up the envelope. And one day... The first sergeant, the guy who told me, you know, don't be afraid of dying. He sees me, he comes over, he's got this big grin on his face. And he hands me the envelope. He says, here's your orders for where you're going. And everybody told me, don't go to Kansas. Kansas is the worst. California, Washington State, Oregon, that's a good tank duty. You don't want to go to Kansas. So, of course, I opened up the, the, the envelope, Kansas. It's Kansas. So everybody's laughing at me now. I left the 1st Armored Division, and I got sent to the 1st Infantry Division. And I, I went from the 35th Armored Regiment to the 34th Armored Regiment and uh, you know, spent several, like a year and a half in Kansas. Where's next after Kansas? Well, that was it. I, I spent the whole rest of my time in Kansas. Right. They tried to get me to reenlist, which they always do, you know. Uh, and part of the reason I bring that up is because you were saying about how long does it take you to become a, a, a tank commander. I arrive in Kansas as a corporal, but in the States, overseas duty was highly rated. You were somehow considered, you know, a, a, a higher level of, I don't know, accomplishment or something if you'd served overseas. Because not everybody serves overseas. A lot of people spend their entire time in the states uh, and never leave, uh, never leave the country. Uh, but because I had this overseas duty, um, I got quickly promoted to sergeant, and then I, you know, became a, a, a full-on tank commander. And so, of course, my my Kansas tank was Dreamboat Annie Two, and uh, <laughs> I had to stick with the name and. Uh, it was interesting because the Kansas duty was very different from the German duty because in Germany, you're on edge 24 hours a day because you're, you have to be ready to go into action at the drop of a hat. But stateside, not so much. Uh, but the 34th Armored was one of those units that if the war did break out in Europe, they'd be the first one sent over as part of Reforger. So we had to maintain a certain level of preparedness, uh, but we didn't, unlike in Germany, we didn't carry live ammunition, uh, you know, because we wouldn't be bringing the vehicles from Kansas 
or California or wherever to Europe, they would send us over and there was pre-positioned equipment all over Europe. And so you'd, you'd fly over, you'd hop in a tank in a factory building and you'd drive out and you'd go. In, in Germany, if the war started, uh, I was going to war on Dreamboat Annie. You know, the vehicles we were on, those are the ones we would we would drive off in, but not uh, in stateside. You would come over because it was it was deemed faster that way. You didn't have to load a bunch of heavy vehicles on planes and stuff. You just stuck people on the plane. You bring them over and they would go to these huge warehouses that were positioned around Western Europe and you would draw a tank out of the parking lot and go off to fight in that. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information